Welcome to the CCM Deep Dive Podcast as we go song by song and story by story through some of Christian music's most influential albums with the artists who created them. It's time to grab your coffee and settle in. Let's go. I think I still struggle just as much to say it with a new language. You know, it'll all work out, you know, if you trust in Jesus. And it, it just makes me kind of want to roll my eyes. And on that note, welcome to In the Name, the fifth song off of the Jennifer Knapp Kansas album. And as you just heard, Jennifer has some challenges with this song 25 years later, theologically. Ugh, it's the first thing I think of when I go to this song. I mean, it, this this for me is one of the songs that ranks among one that I kind of like to put behind me. It's it's a little bit campy. So part of that sentiment might have to do with the fact that Jennifer was writing from the perspective of a new Christian and trying to work out the quote-unquote Christianese language that might sound a bit unusual at first, especially for someone as cerebral as she is. I think what I was sincerely trying to attempt to do was kind of make sense of this this Christian concept of, you know, God is my co-pilot or like Jesus take the wheel. There's there's this notion inside particular conservative evangelical spaces that, you know, uh, this was a message that I certainly got early on in the piece and not only and in particular as a woman that I was kind of supposed to outsource my decision making skills so that I couldn't trust my own voice and I needed to like you know, whatever I said, oh, I decided to do is like basically God needed to have given me that direction in some way, either through kind of the the influence of other people who had authority in my life because apparently I didn't have any of my own. And I think I was trying to sort that out with some of these things. So, you know, and even concepts like living in the world, but not of it. So it's, you know, the this is, a, I think on the surface, the song is a is a practice of that and practice on taking the language of my community is basically, you know, don't trust in the world. And I think one of this, the, the chorus is built off a scripture that some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord or God, right? Some are trusting in their own might and their own strength. And I was trying to understand that and then practice that in the song. Even though Jennifer no longer considers herself an evangelical Christian in the historical sense, she's still shaping and defining her faith earning a Master of Divinity degree just a couple um, of years ago. When it, uh, I think, you know, when you talk about when it comes to our happiness or cer- certainty and our security, I don't think it takes a theological mind to appreciate that, you know, none of these things ultimately give us happiness or inner peace. But I think ultimately without that inner peace, we definitely struggle. And I don't know, I was trying to reflect that in this song, but I think I still struggle just as much to say it with a new language. You know, it'll all work out you know, if you trust in Jesus. And it it just makes me kind of want to roll my eyes that I even have an evidence of that. But at the same time, you know, I look at this song and go, I was was really, it's the evidence of the fact that from very early on, I understood that there is at least, um, that there was a language to it and that it didn't always, 
it it does kind of come out campy and it doesn't necessarily always reflect what it what we really mean to say by that which is you know how do we find our inner peace what does that mean and how much reliance are we going to put on certainty and circumstances i, I would say it a different way today but at the time this is the way that it came out all in all the song was just a snapshot in jennifer's faith journey written at a time when she was exploring the language of the Bible, all set to the score of an upbeat, catchy rock pop sound. (laughs) So maybe she can give herself a break. It's got a beat and you can dance to it. (laughs) Speaking of upbeat, catchy rock pop sound, the sound she's known for, that's not the kind of music Jennifer listened to when she was growing up in Kansas. Yeah, I mean, I think at first kind of like what surrounded me, I mean, definitely my family were like old country music people. So anywhere from Reba McIntyre, Alabama, uh, Johnny Cash, and which would have even been dated in my youth at that time. Uh, but I grew, I mean, there was a steady diet of country music available to me just because that's what my family listened to. And I think around junior high, I found that was, you know, None of my friends listen to that crap, <laughs> I would say. So I started to like kind of look for you have to go out of your way because there weren't rock music stations where I lived. They just simply weren't you couldn't there. They, they weren't there. Like you. The only thing you could get is a local AM radio station that occasionally played country. And that was the only thing you could get. And then I didn't have cable either. And there was like pre MTV. Um, Probably MTV didn't come around until I was maybe like mid junior high or something like that. And I didn't have cable, so I didn't have access to that either. So that's all to say is the music that I wanted to hear were largely things that my friends were listening to because they had access to it. And then I would, you know, try and basically get mixtapes from them. So I got into groups like The Cure, um, The Smiths, like a lot of European stuff. Uh, I had then like uh, I remember I had a, a music uh, one of my teachers in high school was like, no, 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 you, you, you know, I was into Depeche Mode and I kind of like kind of that Euro stuff and Susie and the Banshees. But I also had this kind of real love for acoustic kind of pop stuff that I didn't really know existed and what was alternative at the time. So what really got me excited was when I got exposure to groups like uh, 10,000 Maniacs, Natalie Merchant. Uh, Then the B-52s were kind of in that, that band, you know, hipster kind of cool like not white snake kind of rock and roll. And because of the relationship between uh, like REM was solo acoustic and that. And so the Athens, Georgia thing really made an Im- a mark on me from the B-52s, REM, and then uh, exposure to the Indigo Girls. And I think what was really important about those things is it kind of married this idea of the things that I loved about the harmonies of country music and the acoustic driven music and started to see examples of that in modern, you know, at that time, what we would have called probably the alternative slash college music scene. So Ani DeFranco had made, you know, sessions at West 54th or something like that. And I managed to see that on NPR or something. Tracy Chapman finally came on the road with Fast Car and that stopped me in my tracks. So, and then I think the other thing I would mention is like the Cowboy Junkies too. And I think Cowboy Junkies in particular were a really great gateway for me because one, I love the poetry. I love the sonic kind of, you know, and not, it wasn't country because the topics weren't, you know, like pickup trucks and, and beer, but it was just, you know, kind of, I think, in the vein of what we call Americana now, that before it had a name for it. And I just appreciated that and the just the laid-back nature of Michael Timmons' uh, guitar playing skills. The Cowboy Junkies were a Canadian alternative country band that mixed folk and rock music with the blues, in which three of the four members were siblings. 
Rolling Stone magazine once called their music an intense, melancholic longing that bleeds the emotions of country music and the blues with the poetic world weariness of the Velvet Underground, all of which fits in perfectly with Jennifer as a young musician. The chord structures weren't really complicated. They were actually really approachable. So I was able to do and play along with them, you know, and and I think that's for me as an influence. I think the ability to understand that when I looked at their music and played along with it, that, you know, music isn't this mystery, mysterious. It doesn't have to be overly complicated. It doesn't have to be unapproachable. It doesn't have to be elitist so only certain people can play it. I mean, you can write a four, you can literally write a two chord song, which I did. I, I made, I've made points in my life to write two chord songs and see what, what the obligations are. Can we actually do that and be entertaining, accomplish something for three and a half minutes and, and still keep people's attention, still have it be meaningful without it being boring. And I think, you know, I, in particular, I think that the cowboy junkies are some artists and Tracy Chapman as well, or artists that got me calming down a little bit and stopped trying to overthink, um, you know, the music theory that goes behind some really quality music. But I think, you know, you have to have a lot of really good elements. I mean, you have to, you have to not just do those four chords, but you have to write the poetry goes with them. The instrumentation, even though it might be simple, needs to be really crisp and coherent. Um, but those were definitely influential kind of artists that, that made me think through that. And just a reminder, with Jennifer's background as a trumpet player, a lot of the orchestral music that she first played also became an influence. I think there's a degree of influence from the classical music side that felt like pop music was in some ways kind of dumbing down the musical experience. And I think when I heard there was a cut, I think, from on one of the Cowboy Junkies records where they had a clarinetist playing a solo in this otherwise, you know, just like a four piece. I mean, a basic Cowboy Junkies is a drummer, a bassist, uh, electric guitar player, a singer, and sometimes an accordion and like some kind of like reedy key. And then so they had this cut where a clarinet player came in and did a solo and it was just beautiful. didn't sound alien. I thought, wait a second, I am looking at this world too narrowly. And then I think even like another landmark for me was uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter's Stones in the Road record, where I think it was Branford Marsalis came and did a cameo with a soprano sax. And to be able to have a country artist that had a had those kinds of moves. It was just one instrument, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't like this grand thing, but I, I think those little moments really mean a lot to whether we realize it or not, to kind of really shape looking at the possibility that music really is open to 
and I, I think we've been fighting this for a long time, but like I'll reference kind of our current climate of social media and where we get these kind of ideas of what we mean to look like in terms of identity. Like I want to be known as this. So I, you know, I want to be a country person, like, like this idea that as a music person to be popular, you have to like pick some kind of identity and some kind of genre and really drive it home and don't break the rules of that. And I think, there are examples through any of our influences that tell us that really the real joy is being able to find something that is true to your own voice and to what you want to communicate and not necessarily, you know, locking yourself up from other options because it creates this entirely new opportunity that somebody's just never thought of or heard before um, that really opens that up, I think, not just for you as a creator, but for the people who are listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CCM Deep Dive Podcast with Jennifer Knapp. Join us next week as we dive into her early start with Goatee Records, CCM Expectations, and of course, song number six, His Grace is Sufficient. Sufficient.